It's a community that was nearly wiped out not so long ago, but Prague still has a resilient Jewish population living among the historic sites of that great city. They survived the century, survived Hitler, survived communists as well, and they're still going, they still have services. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, guides from the Czech Republic introduce us to the Jewish sites of Prague. We'll also meet a woman who specializes in helping neighbors learn to live together after surviving some of the world's most notorious conflicts. They are part of one community. They live next to each other, but their relationships were totally shattered by a very brutal war. And a guide from Belfast tells us how her community has started to remember the legacy of the Titanic. It was launched from that city's shipyards just a little over 100 years ago. If you're going to blame somebody for Titanic, I blame the captain. He didn't take control of the situation. Set sail with us for the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we're exploring the many sites that tell the Jewish history of Old Town Prague. And a psychologist who founded a center for peacebuilding shares what she faces in helping the residents of war-torn communities all around the world rebuild after years of conflict and loss. Despite all they've been through in recent years, the people of Belfast in Northern Ireland would rather forget about April 15, 1912. That's the date the Titanic sank in the North Atlantic on its maiden voyage to New York, just less than two weeks from the day it was launched from the Belfast shipyards. Susie Miller specializes in leading tours of the sites and the history of the Titanic in Belfast, and she's here to help us explore the famous ship's legacy, which still captures the world's imagination all these years later. Susie, ahoy. Pleasure. Give us the context. What was the Titanic? Why was it so important? What happened? And then what's your family story? The Titanic was the biggest ship in the world when it was built in 1912, and primarily it was built to take people to America in particular emigrants who were going out to to start a new life. People see the the film of Titanic and see all these people dressed up in glamorous clothes and think it was all about those first-class passengers. But actually, how that shipping line made its money was transporting thousands and thousands of of emigrants, third-class passengers. The first class were just the the sort of decoration at the top of the ship. But for me, um, Titanic was built in Belfast, and sometimes people don't, don't know that because we haven't shouted about it for a long time. And my great-grandfather, Thomas Miller, was one of the engineers who helped to build her. And then he decided he was going to sail on her, like so many people, checking out the new world, see what opportunities were there. So he left my grandfather and his brother behind, told them both he would see them again in a few months' time. Each of the boys was given two new pennies, 1912 pennies, and was told not to spend them until they saw their father again. So my grandfather remembers watching Titanic sailing down Belfast Lock, clutching these two pennies in his hand. My great-grandfather was one of the crew of Titanic. He had no chance of getting off that ship, so unfortunately he perished. When my five-year-old grandfather heard that news, he remembered what he'd been told, don't spend those two pennies. So he kept them. They've been passed down through the generations, and I still have them to this day. Oh my goodness, you've got a 1912 penny. I have two, yes. Your great-grandfather father gave to your grandfather. Yes. It's the only thing he had to remind him of his father who had sailed off on Titanic with the hope of providing better opportunities for those two kids. But he was on the wrong ship. This was a a state-of-the-art ship in its day. How long did it take for the, the voyage across? It would have taken from Southampton in the south coast of England right over to New York City. It should have taken five to six days. Titanic wasn't built for speed. It was all about luxury. It was Mm -hmm. all about providing the best facilities for those first-class passengers. Even so, getting across in five or six days was quite remarkable back then, I would think. It was pretty good going, yes. Mm -hmm. They made a few stops to pick up passengers in France and in the south Mm -hmm. coast of Ireland as well. But unfortunately, they were going just too fast when they hit that ice field. Mm. Uh, Really, if you're going to blame somebody for Titanic, I blame the captain. He didn't take control of the situation. He should have slowed right down or stopped for the night when he knew there was ice in the area. He was a little bit too um, confident in his ship that it didn't need to go by the rules. I I think so, yes. There there were so many superlatives. You know, this was the biggest ship in the world Mm -hmm. and it was supposed to be unsinkable. Mm. And really, that's why this embarrassment about it prevailed in Belfast for so long because it's right because Belfast really never trumpeted the fact that uh, the the Titanic was from that city. It was almost an embarrassment, but yeah. but now that's different. And you lead tours uh, 
celebrating the heritage, the Belfast heritage of making great ships, even well, though one of them sank after hitting an iceberg. Yeah, that's it. You know, Titanic is really just the hook uh, to everything that was going on in, in Belfast all those years ago. Uh, you know, obviously everybody knows the brand Titanic, so they want to come and see where it was built and where it yeah. was fitted out and where all these thousands of workers actually worked to make this happen. Okay, so you've built a whole tour around the Titanic in Belfast that you've designed and lead. Yeah. Tell me what, what would that tour entail, whether I'm with you or not. What would I do to make a Titanic-themed tour in Belfast? In Belfast. Well, you know, for me, it's all about the people. Uh, so we're visiting places that are pertinent to some of the main characters in the Titanic story. Thomas Andrews, for example, who was the designer of the ship, who went down with the ship. We go to where he lived, his house, where he left from on that morning with all these hopes and dreams. We go to the beach where my grandfather stood and watched Titanic sail out, where all that story unfolded. The cottage where he was brought up afterwards is still there. It's a whitewashed thatch cottage. You couldn't get more Irish if you tried. Uh, You can walk down the slipways where Titanic was actually constructed. You can visit the dry dock where her propellers were put on. You can Whoa, visit. No, the, wait a minute. There's a. I, I mean, I remember this. There is a dry dock in Belfast that is so huge, literally, the Titanic could fit in it. Yeah, it was built specifically for Titanic, so it's a big Titanic-shaped hole in the ground, basically like a jelly mold for yeah. Titanic, and that really starts to bring home to people just how huge this ship was. You know, when my grandfather was taken to see it, he couldn't understand what it was. As a five-year-old boy, he looked up at this huge, big structure. He couldn't figure out what it was. Now, when you stand there in Belfast and you look at this huge dry dock, how, how long was the Titanic? It was 882 feet. 882 feet. That's three football fields long, basically, as an American can think in terms of football fields. Whoa. And when you look at that, what I would think is, hmm, 1912. This was when the British Empire was really at its peak. It was before yep. World War One, and That's the right. sun never set on the British Empire. Uh, exactly. And, so and this was sort of the industrial heartland, wasn't it? It was, yes. Uh-huh. Belfast had the biggest linen producers in the world, biggest rope works, biggest shipbuilders, and all those allied trades that fed into those industries. It really was a huge wheel in the, the British Empire. Titanic, I suppose, is the symbol of, of all that that led up to. Susie Miller leads Titanic-themed tours in her hometown of Belfast, Northern Ireland, and she's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You'll find a link to her website in this week's program notes, and that's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. So when you're talking about Titanic sightseeing, uh, you, you got it, Belfast, and uh, is there a museum in Belfast that you would go to that gives a little of the maritime history? Yes, there is. A few years back now, uh, Titanic Belfast opened, which is a very modern structure, Mm -hmm. uh, and it sits right at the heart of where Titanic was built, right at the head of the slipways. It's a very, very outstanding-looking building, and it interprets the Titanic story from a a modern point of view. It's all Mm audiovisual, there's lots of buttons to press that the kids will like, and yeah, it gets under the surface of why Belfast? Why was this thing built in Belfast? What was going on there? A hundred years ago. A hundred years ago in Belfast. And now, uh, of course, Belfast is in the far north of Ireland. The Titanic's last stop before its fateful voyage was Cove in the south of Ireland. That's correct, yes. And that town, it's a little confusing because it's spelled C-O-B-H. Yes. And it's spelled like Cove. Cove, yeah, like a cove. Right. Uh And it's near the very beautiful and touristic town of Kinsale. Cove has a marvelous maritime museum that has a lot on both the Lusitania and the Titanic, two great, if unfortunately, uh, fateful stories from Tragic. maritime history. Yes, indeed, yes. They also opened a museum down in, in Cove just to commemorate that that was the last port of call of Titanic, and that's where a lot of those steerage emigration passengers got on. And their museum is housed within the old White Star Line ticket office, so it ah. really has a, a tangible connection. It does. Uh, to you what almost going can on. feel like you were one of those immigrants and you've cobbled together your last money and you bought the ticket and you're ready to go to the new land. That's it, yes. You know, it's all about the future and heading out with such high hopes, which a few days later were all lying in shatters. Wow. There's a lot of uh, interesting connections from that corner of Ireland. I mean, this is, uh, I think, Charles Lindbergh, who flew from America. I think the first land he saw in Europe was the southwest tip of Ireland. Mm -hmm. You've got the first scoop. Do you know the story about the scoop? In America, we have the uh, news. If you get the scoop, that means you got the first story. Okay. And and they used to throw a capsule off of a ship from the United States with news in it, and somebody would go in a boat out from the southwest tip of Ireland and scoop it up, (laughs) and they'd run home and they'd have that news from America. The first telegraph wire was laid from the United States over to the British Isles, and all of this must have been an exciting time uh, about 100 years ago. 
And yes, we feel indeed. that today in our sightseeing when we go to Ireland. Yes, uh-huh. there's so many little things. I mean, Marconi, for example, was experimenting with his radio uh, signals and he did those between Ballycastle and Rathlin Island off the north coast of uh, Northern Ireland. So, you, you know, you've got all these little sidebars going on as you drive around the coast of Northern Ireland. So now what did the sinking of the the Titanic mean to the city and the industry in Belfast? Well, you know, it didn't so much uh, destroy Harland and Wolfe. Their boom years were the war years, which were just coming. And then, of course, the Second World War as well. Harland and Wolfe is actually still in existence. It's still there. They just don't make ships anymore. They do big, heavy engineering projects. When I come into Belfast, of course, the first thing I notice is what you nicknamed Samson and Goliath. Are, are they related? These are the two giant cranes yes. for shipbuilding. Yes, they have H&W written on them, which we now say stands for Hello and Welcome instead of Hello Harland. and Welcome. <laughs> That's cute. I didn't realize that. That's nice. <laughs> but yeah, at the time when, when Titanic sank, really Belfast went quiet about it. We didn't know how to deal with it. Shipyard workers are big, rough, tough men and they don't show their feelings. So rather than deal with it, we just ignored it until quite recently, really, until about the 1980s when the wreck was finally discovered. And we're talking about Belfast, and of course Belfast was an industrial heavyweight city, but then you had the troubles and all the violence, and it scared away a lot of tourism. And I remember decades ago going to Belfast, and there was nothing but checkpoints and nervousness and angry graffiti. Today, Ireland is kind of a success story, a former sectarian uh, extremist and problems getting it together. And of course, it's it's not la-la land, but uh, people are realizing violence is not the answer. And uh, Ireland is learning to live with its different communities. When we go as a tourist to Belfast, is there any concern about safety for a tourist or, or lingering problems because of the troubles? Really, I would say you would be fine. There are times around July when you will have marches taking place, demonstrations, it's good not really to get caught up in those, especially around the 12th or 13th of July. So that is, is this relating to the orange, yes, orange the, marches? Yes, those are, are commemorating the Battle of the Boyne, right. uh, which was uh, a short time ago. It was 1690. So, you know, the best thing is just to be an observer. Just stand That's back right. and watch and everything will be fine. Stick to the main areas of the city and you will be absolutely grand. But we take lots of tours to Ireland. I have, a, I have an ethic of not taking a tour to Ireland without including North Ireland as well as the Republic. Mm-hmm. You lead tours almost every day while you're in town in Belfast. And right. uh, you get a lot of Americans. And I think both of us can, can honestly say if you're concerned about any kind of uh, safety issues uh, relating to the troubles of Ireland, those days are past. And if you're going to go to Ireland... There's no problem at all to hop on that train in Dublin. It takes less than two hours and get up to Belfast and check out an exciting city with a great opportunity to learn more about the Titanic. And the thing is, we'll be so glad to see you. We didn't have tourists for so many years that now that people are starting to come to Belfast and they're interested, you will receive a really warm welcome when you get there. After all, the big cranes, standing for Harland and Wolf, H and W, actually means... Hello and welcome. Susie Miller, thanks a lot for a little understanding of the Titanic and also a little uh, good reason to visit your hometown, Belfast. Thank you. Next, we get tips for exploring the important sites connected to the Jewish history of Old Town Prague. We're at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. One of the most powerful places in Europe that I've found for understanding Jewish history and civilization is Prague in the Czech Republic. It was an important center for Jewish mystics in the Middle Ages. 
the community prospered during the Renaissance, and by the early 18th century, Prague had the largest Jewish community in the world. But barely two generations ago, Hitler planned to house a museum there to showcase the artifacts of the Jewish culture he planned to wipe out. Today, Prague is home to a fraction of the Jewish population it had before 1940. Yet it has some of Europe's most important sites connected to Jewish history. Joining us from Prague to help us plan a visit to the city's Jewish quarter are Katerina Svobodova and Jana Hrankova. Jana, Katerina, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Katerina, when you think about Hitler creating this museum, what was Hitler's vision for post-World War II Jewish Museum in Prague? Well, basically, that's about the irony I think you were talking about already. I mean, when you hear this thing came into his mind, like, you just can't believe it. Like, why they wanted to show the, the whole world, you know, that this was the culture of people whom they exterminated. So then for me, when I heard that first time, I just could not really, I still actually cannot understand the idea of that. But on the other hand, that's why these days we can show all these great sites to our visitors who come there. So these are the treasures of the different synagogues and so on brought yeah, to the are, capital city mm, and shown off in what were synagogues. Yeah, I would say that because of this, we have also one of the biggest collection of Judaica. You know, if you compare the other European cities, that's just because we had all those synagogues filled with all those items, and we still have many, many of them. They are in deposits. And now, Jana, I understand that that Hitler actually ordained Jewish citizens to administer this museum during the Holocaust. Yeah, well, the the Jewish Museum was uh, started even even before, mm-hmm. because as Jews got equal rights, and later on the Jewish area, the former Jewish ghetto, was uh, raised almost really. Only the synagogues were left. They wanted to keep uh, their treasures. Prague had a pretty sizable Jewish community. It was one of the bigger Jewish was, communities in the yeah. Middle Ages. Why were there so many Jews in Prague? It was really kind of like the the, the censure of uh, Judaica studies, let's say. Uh, they had a very important rabbis over there mm-hmm. and the religious school in Prague as well. And historically, uh, Jews were important for the economy and with the trade and yeah. money changing and this sort of thing. Wasn't Prague a crossroads, Katerina, that's, of trade yeah, routes? That's what I think that a lot of people saw. Yeah, yeah, their chance also to come if they were businessmen. And so then basically uh, those, you know, whatever goods was taken from the north to the south or west to east or the other way around, Prague basically was really playing on that intersection. It was was really an important trade center. Yeah. Now, Mm. today when we go to Prague and we want to see the, quote, Jewish quarter, it's scattered around, isn't it? I mean, it's not one center. How how does that work, Jana? Well, it's a part of the original old town, really. That's where the Jewish quarter is situated. Because in the old town, as you were just mentioning, there was the main market, the mm-hmm. old town square, and the Jews were really like settled by the business, really, mm-hmm. next to the old town square. So today it really means originally in the heart of the city. And Katrina, when you buy a ticket to the Jewish quarter, it includes four or five sites that are scattered around the historic it, Jewish well, quarter? Well, scattered, but, but only within a very short uh, walking distance. You okay. know, it's not really going very far. So, yeah, it's very compact in a way. So very quickly review those different buildings that you would see in the oh, Jewish quarter. Okay, well, so we have the synagogues, um, let's say the first one, the Meisler Synagogue, where we now have the history exhibition, then the second half of that, because... The first one covers only the period until the 18th century, so the second half is in the Spanish synagogue. Mm-hmm. Then we have the Pinka synagogue, what is the Holocaust memorial, then the old Jewish cemetery, then the Meisel synagogue, what tells people everything about Judaism, what is Torah, and all these uh, holidays that are celebrated, what they mean, and all that. And then the last side is the ceremonial hall, what is actually the former place for Hebra Kadisha, for the burial society for that brotherhood, so that explains people what are the burial customs in the Jewish uh, tradition and all that. So there's different synagogues that are now serving like museums, one with the old, old history, one with the more modern history, one with the traditions and the festivals and Mm -hmm. the family celebrations. Of course, we've got the Pinchas Synagogue, which has the powerful Holocaust memorial. Jana, when you go into the Pinchas Synagogue, what do you see and what do you hear? It's a quite moving place, really, because, as you were mentioning, there was a big community, Jewish community, not only in Prague, but in around the country. So before the World War II, it was something like 120,000 people, Jewish people living in, in Czechoslovakia. 
And then uh, when we enter the synagogue, all the walls inside of the synagogue, former synagogue, are really covered with the names of almost 80,000 Czech Jews who were killed during 80, the war. 80,000 names. 80,000 names written, handwritten names in alphabetical order, always with the name of the village or city from which they came from. Mm. The names, a... first names, surnames, and also date of birth. And, of course, we can always read also the names, the days when they were killed over there. And then to make it more, even more powerful, Katerina, you hear the audio track. Uh, yes, you actually hear the audio track of all the victims, uh, what were recorded by two, I would say, quite important uh, Czech actor and actresses. So then they read that, and then you also hear actually excerptions of music of Jewish authors who worked, if they could, at least to a certain extent in Terezin, one of the songs especially they always play there. So you have the appropriate music and you have this somber reading of the names mm. of the nearly 80,000 80, Czechoslovakian Jews killed Czech, by Hitler. Czech Jews, definitely. And I would wow. say because for the, for the Jewish people it's so important to have a grave and the name, this is really what is left. Very important. They couldn't yeah. have the, the graves, so at least... They, they can be have, remembered with their name. Exactly, exactly. We're learning about the important Jewish history of Old Town Prague right now on Travel with Rick Steves, with tips for how you can experience it for yourself. From our guides from the Czech Republic, Jana Harankova and Katerina Svobodova. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Donna's on the phone from Oldsmore, Florida, and she has a question about a trip she's planning to take to Prague very soon. Donna, how can we help? Um, my question is, I'll be traveling to Prague uh, for the very first time this spring, and I was wondering, what is the one thing not to miss in the Jewish quarter, and how much time should I allow for exploring the Jewish quarter? Well, we were just mentioning the Pinkas Synagogue, mm-hmm. so that's definitely for me, apart from all the other important synagogues, but that's the, that's the one. That because you, you've got you history really... and you've got Holocaust memorial. Exactly. The other exactly. ones are culture and history. In fact, the cemetery in Prague, which is so evocative, and mm-hmm. it's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of these crooked old romantic tombstones on top of tombstones with the little pebbles symbolizing yes. prayers for the loved ones and everything. That's pre-Holocaust, isn't it? That's yeah, very definitely. Old. Yeah, yeah. It's from the early, early uh, beginning of yeah. the Jewish history. And that's in, a powerful stroll through that incredible it's cemetery. It's unbelievable because uh, they didn't have enough space through the centuries inside of the Jewish quarter, so they were actually burying people on top of each other's. Mm. So we talk about something like twelve layers of people buried on probably top a of reminder each of the congested situation in a ghetto yeah, when everybody yeah. was living in such tight quarters. So, Donna, the most powerful part of the Jewish quarter would be the Pinkas Synagogue. And, Katerina, how much time should you allow if you want to? You buy the tickets, so you're yeah. paying for all of the admissions. Exactly. If you yeah, want to see is... it all, how, how much time Well, if you, you want to see it all, depends also if you go by yourself, you know, or if you take a guide. So I would allow some two, three hours mm, for a good okay. uh, yeah. understanding yeah, I, I of the whole area. Definitely, yeah. yeah. I hope that helps, Donna. Yes, thank you very much. Have a great time exploring Prague thank and don't you. miss the Jewish Quarter. Thanks for your call. Carrie's on the line in Hyden Lake, Idaho. Carrie, thanks for your call. Thank you. I would just like to add that we were in Prague last spring in April, and we were there when a lot of the European kids were on their spring trips, and we took a tour of the Jewish Quarter in the morning, and it was absolutely wall-to-wall people. We weren't able to see as much as we wanted. Every synagogue we went into was so crowded. And I would suggest to somebody to take a tour if you want to in the afternoon or go in the afternoon where it might not be quite as crowded. And then the other thing that we did that was absolutely one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had. We took, a, a, it was an all-day guided tour out to Ladice in Terezin. And Ladice just, it was something that I just felt like I had to go see. Terezin is the former concentration camp that was a show camp that made the, right. uh, when the Red Cross would come in, you know, the Nazis could say, see, we're treating our, our right. Jewish inmates with some kind of dignity. And of course, it was a big sham, and it was a horrific place. And today, we can go to Terezin, which is an old walled city that used to keep people out, and then it was used by the Nazis to keep people in. But tell us about Ladice. That's That sounds very powerful. It, it's a small village. 
outside of uh, Prague. And when Reinhard Heydrich was assassinated, um, false information was given to the Nazis that the killers were in Lidice. Mm. And the Nazis went out there in, on June 10th, 1942, I think I've got my dates right, and they took and shot every male 15 years and older. They took all of the children and moved them out, told the mothers that they were going to be taken to a safe place, but they were gassed. The mothers then were taken, and some of the mothers did survive. Then the town was burned to the ground. I mean, there is absolutely nothing except a few foundations. There is a very nice small museum. There is a powerful statue commemorating the children. I think there were something like 87 or 88 children up to the age of 15 who were taken away and mm. gassed. It sounds and like it sounds like Orador sur Glande in, it, in France. Orador, very much, very yeah, similar. A city that Nazis re, for retribution they killed everybody yes. in the town, and today it's just it's it's charred remains are there as a reminder for that atrocity. Yes, and even less than at Orador. Wow. It's just one of those things that I think you have to see. Yana, you take groups there all the time. What's your trick to try to avoid the crowds? Well, my suggestion would be because, uh, as we mentioned, you need to get a ticket uh, to get to the Jewish Museum. And uh, the Pinkas Synagogue is the most popular spot really, and the most moving, as we were mentioning. But don't buy the ticket over there because there is always a long line. So you rather buy the ticket, for example, inside of the Meisel Synagogue, okay. where you can nicely start the tour of the Jewish Museum because inside of the Meisel Synagogue is a like the first part of the history of the Jewish ghetto, you will have the ticket already, and then you don't stay in the line and just go in front of all the people and get in with the ticket. If you see a big long line at the Pinkas Synagogue, it's not to get into the synagogue, it's to buy a ticket to to get into the synagogue. And the ticket has five sections on it, and you can buy that at any of the five places, so go to one of the less popular places. Yeah, yeah, definitely not buying the ticket in a And also maybe what is good that these days, the ticket is good for seven days. So Mm -hmm. actually... So you can come late... Yeah, and yeah. go back if it's Save really it for yeah. the next day. Mm. Yeah, Katerina. By the way, Carrie was talking about Ledici. How do you pronounce this? And and how? What is your tip as a guide for that? So we pronounce it as Ledice. 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 Because there is the t sound. And this is a memorial city destroyed by the Nazis today. Left there so we can remember. I always finish the tour that I go to the new Lidice, what was built just after the war. So mm-hmm. those few who returned from the war to that area, they actually built the village again, but just next Okay, and that door, gives you a, say, a, a sort of a to, resurrection, hopefulness exactly, sort of thing. Exactly, to see that, that the city goes, goes on. on. Life and, goes on. Yes. Well, that's yes. a beautiful thing. And when you think about the children victims of the Holocaust, you see that at Lidice, you also see that very powerfully at Terezin, where the adorable children had their kindergartens and they made these beautiful scrapbooks and they did their plays. Isn't there an exhibit in Prague about the Terezin children? Uh, there is, there is as well, because in the uh, side of the Pinka Synagogue on the first floor, there's really moving little exposition of children's drawings so don't miss from that. Terezin, definitely, yeah. right. definitely. Kerry, thank you so much for your call. Oh, thank you. Okay, bye now. Jana Hronkova and Katerina Svobodova are guiding us around the sites of Prague's important Jewish history right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You'll find website links to a number of places we've discussed in the notes to this week's show, and that's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Kathy's on the line in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Kathy, thanks for your call. Thank you. Appreciate My husband and I are very excited about uh, our upcoming tour. And I like to read a good historical novel before exploring a town, like I will reread The Agony and the Ecstasy before we go to Florence. It brings Michelangelo to life. Um, I'm wondering if um, you or your guides could recommend a, a good historical novel to read before we get to Prague. Well, one one book that I, I now think about is was written by Madeleine Albright. It's called The, the Prague Winter. And because Madeleine Albright, uh, she was born in our country, she was born in Czech Republic, so she's got really Czech genes. She's writing really, it's a, like a book about the history of uh, recent history, ni- end of 19th, 20th, his oh, okay. 20th century So our former history. Secretary of State, yes, Madeleine yes, Albright. Yes, yeah, Madeleine okay. Albright, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Excellent. And the book is 
the book is great, really. And she, she it's like a novel about the whole history of the 19th and 20th century. Mm. There you go. Beautiful. Thanks, Kathy, Thanks, for your guys. call. And I think Kathy's so right. You know, Prague is one of the great cities of Central Europe, and it's a shame to go there and not have any background on, on the culture and the history. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. As we do every week, we're exploring different cultures that we can enjoy in our travels and find a better way to appreciate all of that history and art and people that we're, we're enjoying. Jana and Katerina, as we finish this discussion of the Jewish quarter in Prague, let's talk about the modern Jewish quarter. Today, it's a gorgeous Art Nouveau. Of course, it was, it was torn down and then rebuilt up just about 100 or 150 years ago. Magnificent architecture. When you walk down the streets in modern Prague's Jewish quarter, what do you think? What do you look for? What do you enjoy? Well, definitely the Art Nouveau buildings over there. Because uh, the former Jewish ghetto was turned down at the end of the 19th century. So that was really the period when the Art Nouveau was very, very popular. So we have gorgeous Art Nouveau houses over there, especially the Paris Avenue, which is uh, really now the center, Parishska. That's uh, Paris in, in Czech, huh? In Czech, Paris. So you've got yeah. this historic area torn down with historic, sort of studded with synagogues and historic Jewish buildings that is all beautiful Art Nouveau. Katerina, what would you look for in today's Jewish quarter of Prague? You know, the problem is that the Jewish community is very small then. We know, of course, why. But still they try to keep those Orthodox tradition because the Prague Jewish town has been always that very section what we've been describing since the beginning of our talk. The thing is that they are now more synagogues serving only as the venues, but mm-hmm. still we can learn a, a lot from there. And they try to mix this old and the new, you know, of course, again, the ways how they are explaining things to the young generation, the to, young ones. To see how the days. Jewish yeah. uh, culture is surviving and mm-hmm. being uh, mm-hmm. passed down to the next generation. Yeah. Very good. Jana? So the life is there still. <laughs> survived the century, survived Hitler, survived communists as well. And, and they, still going. They're still going. They still have services. And as travelers, synagogues. with the help of good guides like you, perhaps, <laughs> I think we can get the most out of our visit. Jana Hrankova and Katerina Svobodova, how will I say thank you in Czech? Děkuji. 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 And too. how would I say thank you very much? Děkuji moc. Děkuji moc. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Děkuji. Next, we'll hear how one woman helps local communities rebuild their social structure after wars and drawn-out conflicts have split them apart. The Art of Peace Building. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Ken Hanley from Edinburgh in Scotland. Kamera ha, the meal in the field. And translated, that means a very warm welcome. Uh, it's a very warm Scottish heartfelt. Have a, the best possible day you can have. And the coup de meal in the field is uh, our Celtic wash with our Irish cousins wishing you a hundred thousand welcomes and the warmest possible day. Kamaraha, a coup a meal a field. Paula Green has dedicated her life to seeking peace in some of the world's most conflicted areas. She founded the nonprofit Karuna Center for Peacebuilding in Amherst, Massachusetts. And Paula teaches graduate level conflict transformation at the School for International Training in Vermont. Her work has taken her to trouble spots in Palestine, the Sudan, Rwanda, Sri Lanka, Nepal, and Bosnia. She joins us on Travel with Rick Steves to share how people in such troubled places as these are able to rebuild their lives and their communities after surviving years of bloody conflict. Paula, so glad you could be with us today on Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you for inviting me. Now, Paula, you've founded the Karuna Center for Peacebuilding. What, what is the Karuna Center? 
Well, the word karuna comes from the Sanskrit, which is the ancient language of India, and it means compassion. And I chose that word because when I founded the organization in 1994, my work was primarily focused in Asia, and I also have a Buddhist practice. As it turned out, the work became very international, but I kept the name because the basis of my work is compassion for the suffering that people are experiencing due to armed conflict. Karuna Center works in war-torn and war-recovering countries with local partners. We work by invitation um, from people who find us either on the web or through my teaching and invite us to partner with them to help rebuild community relations that have been shattered by mass violence. Now, you've got an ironclad rule that you only go where you're invited, and you mentioned you work with uh, local partners by invitation. Why is it important to work with local partners, and how important is it that you are enthusiastically welcomed by these people? It seems very critical to us. It seems inappropriate for me as an American to propose a program for someone else's country that I have not been invited to propose. It's their conflict. It's, it's their recovery. These are their decisions to make, and when the time is ripe for them, they will reach out for external help if they need it and want it. And if they don't, we have to honor that as well. Hmm. It's called peace building. It sounds nice, but I have a hard time getting my brain around exactly, concretely, what is peace building. Can you take an example of a, of a troubled area and explain how you have built peace? Well, we don't build the whole peace. We build a piece of the peace. And the work that we focus on is largely around restoring community relationships that have been destroyed by armed conflict. So, for example, in Bosnia, I began, I had an invitation from a woman there in 1996, which was one year after the war ended. And in 1997, we made our first trip to Bosnia, which became a six-year project of my going there with a team three times a year for a few weeks each time to work first with women's groups and then with educators to help people talk to each other about what caused the war, how it happened, what kind of suffering took place, how people could trust each other and begin to rebuild in order to live in their communities in a safe future. So that's the level of work that we do. And just one generation ago, people were sniping at each other. Parents of the, of the young generation today were literally killing each other. The, the parks in most are filled with graves, and they all have the same year on it, I think, what, 1992 or something like that. And uh, these are clearly broken relationships where you've got the parents of the young generation were killing each other, and now the young generation is trying to get it together. Is that an example of community relationships being destroyed and how you might see an opening to create something positive? Yes, it is. And in that case, it was a woman activist, a woman named Msuda, who called me in 1996. She had heard about me from some other peace organization we were both part of. And she wanted to rebuild first the women's community, primarily the Muslim women who had been the victims of the war in the region of Bosnia in which she had lived, and then to meet with the Serb women who were on the other side of that conflict, and then to expand it to educators so that it was women and men. And we began working with the women, the Muslim women first, and the Muslim and Serb women, and the teachers, all of whom have to live together. They are part of one community. They live next to each other. But their, their relationships were totally shattered by a very brutal war that went on from 1992 to 1995. And it's true, there were graveyards all over Bosnia. And in fact, people are still exhuming bodies to try to identify their loved ones. No, you talk about working with women. Is, is that a common denominator if you think about troubled places around the planet that you would have more traction in that community by working with women rather than men? We look for common bonds. We look for bridges. And women are often a more readily accessible common bridge than men. Many of the men have been the fighters in these wars. And women come more naturally in most cultures of the world to being able to identify and express their feelings, and they seem more ready to begin to rebuild relationships after the war. This is also true of young people, and we often work with groups of young people, but we may not and should not exclude men because we need the whole community to heal. Paula Green from the Karuna Center for Peacebuilding is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. As we learn what's required on a human level 
to move beyond the conflicts in the world's hotspots and rebuild communities, turning enemies into neighbors. Her center's website is karunacenter.org. That's spelled K-A-R-U-N-A. Paula, you're a psychologist by training. Do you actually use those skills to psychoanalyze problems between groups of people as you would between individuals? Well, I wouldn't use the word psychoanalyze, but I use every skill I've ever learned as a psychologist and psychotherapist in the work that I do overseas. In some way, the issues are parallel. They're issues of communication. They're issues of violence. They're issues of gaps in understanding. They're issues of misperceptions. And whether I'm working with a, a client or a family of clients in the United States, which I did in the past, or working overseas in war zones, the communication issues need to be addressed. So different sides need to sit down and talk, just like a, a feuding couple would need to sit down and talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would imagine you have face-saving concerns and pride concerns. Yes, and people whose communities have murdered each other brutally. Mm. And how do you recover from that? How do you put all that together in order to live in the same community in the future, in order to have your children in the schools, to have your families interfacing, to have people in businesses working together? It's hard for an American to imagine the baggage that must come with a society one generation after some kind of genocide going on. I mean, you could talk about it in former Yugoslavia. You could talk about it in Rwanda. Uh, you could talk about it in a number of places. How do you deal with these long-standing, deeply ingrained uh, mentalities of conflict and resentment? Well, what I often say to people is that I meet, I meet the best people in the worst of circumstances because the people who show up with any interest in the workshops or seminars or classes that we're running are people who want to put the worst of the war behind them and rebuild the relationships. So we start with the people who are available. They're not usually the fighters themselves, although one never knows who's in the room. But we start with those people who want very much to explore what happened in order to prevent its recurrence. We're very worried about cycles of revenge and counterviolence. Mm-hmm. And the more people who can explore the causes of the conflict and seek to remediate those causes in order to prevent future revenge. That's the work we want to do. You know, I was just in uh, the Holy Land in Palestine and in Israel, and I I kept thinking as I was talking to people, if they could stop looking to the past and and consider the present and where they want to go in the future, it'd be a huge accomplishment, but these cycles of revenge just sometimes are impossible to stop. Yes, and until the past is acknowledged, it really does haunt the human condition. People very much need to have the past acknowledged. So it needs to be acknowledged. That's right. But then can you endeavor to put it behind you and and deal on the present? I think there's a process of mourning that has to happen, and it has to happen collectively in the whole community. And I think as people acknowledge the results of the conflict, mourn their losses, they can begin to build together toward a safer future. So let's talk about the roots of these conflicts. Uh, I've been thinking about planting settlers. Uh, It seems like when one society plants settlers in another society, generations later, people pay the price. What's your take on, on settlers? Well, my, my take on settlers is that they are um, they're living on somebody else's land, and it's causing a great many problems. What are some examples of settlers uh, that have caused problems or will cause problems? Well, I think in our own um, U.S. history, we can look at the conquest of the West and the, um, the settlers. We didn't call them settlers. Mm-hmm. But the people who came in and moved on to Native American land and dispossessed the Native Americans, sent them on marches, sent them away, took their land. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have our own very rugged history with, um, with conflict, with dispossession, and with settlement on other people's lands. And land and water are huge issues for people because for most people, they spell life. And so when lands and water are taken away, people Hmm. feel existentially threatened with non-existence, and they will fight. People's basic human needs have to be satisfied. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and together we're connecting with the rest of our world right now. We're talking with Paula Green, who has founded the Karuna Center for Peacebuilding, and she's worked in uh, conflicted regions all across the planet. I've also been thinking about the heritage of colonialization. To me, the the strife in Sri Lanka goes back to... uh, British people importing people from Tamil Nadu in India to pick the the tea leaves cheaper than the local Sinhalese people. Uh, Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about your experience in Sri Lanka that way and the heritage of colonialism that is a 
a very steep price to bear uh, long after well, colonialism is gone. I'm glad you asked about Sri Lanka because I started to work there in the early 1990s, and for the past 20 or 25 years, I've been going in and out of Sri Lanka a few times a year for programs. And most recently, Karuna Center did a program in the northeastern area of Sri Lanka, which is far away from the capital, in an area that has been largely Tamil, who were the minority people who were brought over and uh, arrived there from India over the past hundreds of years. And they often feel dispossessed of their language, their customs, their culture, their religion, because they're a minority. And we were working with religious leaders from the four religions on the island. There are Christians, Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists in Sri Lanka. And in this rural area in the northeast of the country, these religious leaders hardly knew each other, hardly went into each other's communities, had very limited ideas of what the religion stood for. And over the course of two years of program, we explored the ways that all the religions taught peace, all the religions sought peace um, for people's safety and people's well-being. And uh, these Sri Lankans now consider themselves to be friends with each other. And they, they now believe that the way to go is to be connected with each other. And one of them wrote, at first we were afraid of each other's accusations and of being blamed for the horrors of the war. Now we are friends, almost like family. But you can attribute that. So that's a very good example. And that sounds very promising, and it it can be attributed to simply physically getting people together so they can understand each other's religions and their heritage and culture? Well, it's getting people together for some very structured conversations. When people get together without any kind of frame or help for the conversations, they will rehash the war, which Mm. is what we don't want, because we all know those old stories. Mm -hmm. We want people to have new conversations on difficult topics. So we structure these conversations extremely carefully and build starting with common denominator and then working toward differences in war history so that it's not just being thrown together at all. It's a very deliberate way of bringing people together. And that's what peace building is. When we're talking about the roots of conflict uh, in strife-torn regions, how much of that is the heritage of borders created by other powers, uh, just false borders? Well, there's a great deal of trouble around that, especially in Africa, but certainly in Asia as well. In Africa, there were so many tribes and clans and religions, and the colonial borders were drawn up as lines in the sand, as they say, without regard for which people had which affiliations. And so much of the conflict now was a struggle to to correct what was wrong with the French, the British, the Germans, the Dutch, etc., making up these divisions. My understanding is there are a lot of countries that are just not governable in a democratic way because the borders are created in a way where there's, there's no logic to the, to the territory from an ethnic point of view. Consequently, you have a strong-arm leader or you've got chaos. Yeah, the most interesting example of that in the current uh, situation is Sudan and South Sudan, where I've been working for the past couple of years. And uh, that was, until 2011, the largest landmass country in Africa. They had a, um, a divorce, not exactly a peaceable one, but they separated, and South Sudan became the newest nation-state in the United Nations. The differences were that the North is um, Muslim, and the South is uh, Christian and animist, and the North had been oppressing people in the South over the centuries, And finally, in uh, the last in this century, people rose up and felt they needed independence. Was that a country created by uh, European colonial powers? Absolutely. So there you have have a case of that. And I I understand Syria is the same way. I mean, Assad represents 15% of the Syrian population with his tribe. And how can anybody rule Syria, which is not a logical country, but a country created 100 years ago by European powers? That's right. And most of the countries in Africa were just so. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking building peace around the world with Paula Green. Her website is karunacenter.org, K-A-R-U-N-A, center.org. She's founded the Karuna Center for Peace Building. Paula, a lot of us are traveling. A lot of us are concerned about the challenges in this world. As a traveler, what advice can you give us to travel in a way that is peace building? I would say sensitivity, respect, awareness, open-mindedness, knowing that we don't know what's best for others or for their struggles, 
and remembering that they're enduring what we might consider unendurable, and they're managing as best as they can, and remembering how privileged we are and what the obligations are of that privilege. And what are the obligations of that privilege? Well, for me, it's to give back. And Paula, as you dedicate your, your work to building peace in these areas, what's one concrete example of, of what you've done that, that has been particularly gratifying? Well, I want to talk about Bosnia because we started talking about Bosnia before. And over the six years, we worked with hundreds of people, Bosnian educators mostly from um, the various sides in the conflict. And then we picked the best people from each side and we began training of trainers programs and we trained them to take over the work. Our goal was to make ourselves obsolete so that a couple of years after we've entered a country, we can walk away knowing that there are people carrying it on. And I stopped working in Bosnia in 2003, but I went back last year for a visit to the cities I worked in, and I was so gratified to see that people had started their own organizations. In fact, one person named their organization the Center for Peacebuilding, named after Karuna Center for Peacebuilding, and they're carrying on the work in very beautiful and meaningful ways. That must be gratifying. And Paula Green, I wish for you to work yourself complete into complete obsolescence. <laughs> and I think you've got a little, a little work ahead of you before you get to there. But Yeah, just, it's not going to happen yet. <laughs> best wishes with the Karuna Center for Peacebuilding. Thank you so much, Rick. Reshaping narrow law and art whose symbols are the millions slain from bitter searching of the heart we rise to play a greater part Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner Thanks to WFCR in Amherst, Massachusetts for studio help this week. You can listen again on demand and find guest information in the details for each week's show. You'll find it in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.